When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. As the American election enters the home straight, Joe Biden is leading in every poll. There are even hushed whispers about the L word. Could he win by a landslide? The latest CBS News battleground tracker shows President Trump trailing Joe Polls. Biden. Joe Biden's been enjoying a significant lead across the country. Look at that. Biden on average leading by nine points in Michigan. Biden currently has an edge in most of the battleground states. Joe Biden nearly doubling his lead. Biden is up five in the new Monmouth poll out of Georgia. Biden is also up five points in the new Marquette poll out of Wisconsin. But for wary political watchers, nothing is settled. They've seen it all before. We've been talking about Hillary Clinton opening up that lead. She looks like she has a lead in the polls, which I think is around six or seven. Donald Trump trailing Hillary Clinton by 10 points. So how does he close that gap? And what would Donald Trump have to do to turn things around? Prayer. After the polls got it catastrophically wrong at the last American election, can we really trust them again? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the US election. Are the polls right? It's not quite what I expected, I have to confess. I think in a normal campaign, I wouldn't be speaking to you from Washington right now and my feet probably wouldn't have touched the ground in Washington for, for <laughs> some weeks. For Henry Zeffman, the Washington correspondent for The Times, reporting on this election has been unlike any other. There's no whistle-stop tour of the country, no stump speeches at crowded rallies, well, not as many as normal anyway. One of the most eagerly anticipated elections in the world has arrived at the same time as the coronavirus pandemic. There's been sort of two spikes. There was the early spike, March, April, which was concentrated in the northeast of the country, most especially New York. Then things started to get a bit better in the northeast, as in the UK, you know, hospitals were less overwhelmed. They had a better idea of how to treat patients. But there was a second spike, sort of July, August, and this time it was in states which had been less badly affected initially, the so-called Sun Belt, so Florida, Arizona, Texas. And again, that receded a bit. And after that second spike, September, October, I did quite a bit of travelling. I've written pieces for The Times from Minnesota, from Pennsylvania, from Wisconsin, North Carolina. But we're now in the grip, it seems, of a third spike. So uh, I was meant to be travelling this week to Iowa. Five or six weeks ago, it really wasn't on 
either campaign's radar as a state that Joe Biden might have any chance of winning, but his polling has become so good that it seems like he might win it. But no, we decided that I wouldn't go in the end because coronavirus is really surging there. It is one of very many states which in recent days has set records for hospitalizations, cases uh, and deaths. Uh, So it's the constant balance, I suppose, of risks between being able to cover the election with as much colour and detail for the times as our readers would want and listeners would want, but also not putting yourself in harm's way. And of course, you know, actually, it does impact the stories you find. So when I was in Wisconsin last week, coronavirus was just starting to spike there as well. And when I went to lots of different suburban towns and small cities, the high streets were empty. And the reason for that, overwhelmingly, was coronavirus. And so when I went to Wisconsin to write the story of whether Joe Biden could win back this state from Donald Trump, which Democrats were stunned to lose to Donald Trump in 2016, part of the answer was coronavirus is still really impacting people's day-to-day lives there. And lots of people I met do blame Donald Trump for it not being over or not at least not being better. And I think that's a real problem for him as he seeks re-election. Looking at the last election, I mean, what 2016 taught us really was not to lay bets and not to trust the polls as much as we had in the past. You know, lots of people were really stunned by the result. And a lot of people blamed the pollsters for not seeing it coming. Where did they go wrong? So look, they did go wrong. But I think there are misconceptions, understandable misconceptions, about quite how wrong they were. So in the last three weeks of the 2016 campaign, the national polls, as distinct from state polls, overstated Clinton's lead by about three percentage points on average, which is not nothing. But that's kind of normal by historical standards. In 2012, when Barack Obama ran against Mitt Romney for re-election, there was actually a bigger average error, 3.3 points, But that time, the polls understated Barack Obama. As in almost every poll, Governor Romney is now statistically tied with or leading President Obama. For Mitt Romney, the challenge is to keep the wind at his back. Up first tonight, the results of CNN's final national poll before the election. And it can't get any tighter than this. Look at this, a 49 to 49 percent tie. Dan, I'm telling you what, this morning the polls are all over the map. Mitt Romney is leading nationwide. The president's leading in some of the big battleground states. So we are, are we on really the road to where one candidate could win the popular vote and the other win the electoral college? So we went into election night in 2012 thinking it was quite a tight race between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and it very quickly became clear that it wasn't. I suppose because, you know, one of the candidates wasn't Donald Trump, people don't talk about that polling error quite as much. So, you know, I think we should be clear that... A polling error of three or so percentage points, it happened to be incredibly consequential to how people were thinking about the election in this occasion, in 2016, but it's not a a radical, unique failure. However, one thing that, that was wrong about the polls was pretty, you know, more wrong than usual, was their polling in states. And in the states, pollsters were on average wrong by about five points. Uh, which is much bigger than they had been in the previous few elections. That state error meant that nobody quite appreciated that Donald Trump was on course or could win, because he won them all very narrowly, states like Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, which had all voted Democratic for mostly about 30 years, so really weren't on anyone's radar. It was sort of America's red wall moment, I suppose. I mean, 
What was making them get it so wrong in those states? What, what were the polling errors that were taking place? We sort of heard a lot about secret Trump supporters, I suppose, but why weren't they showing up on the polls? So pollsters don't believe it was a case of secret Trump supporters so much as a problem with their waiting. So the way that pollsters work, they don't just take the first thousand people to answer their survey and just say, okay, those thousand people are representative of the country. They want to weight the sample to make it representative of the country. So you want to get the right proportion of over 65-year-olds. You want to get the right proportion of men, of women, of people who voted for the Democrats last time, of people who voted for the Republicans last time. So there's, there's a sort of complicated sampling process by which they try to make the sample as representative of the public, either nationally or in the specific state that they're polling. One thing that pollsters did not wait for was whether the respondents to their polls had gone to university. Because they'd never waited for that before, it wasn't a thing which usually affected the polling results dramatically. But it became apparent after the election that Donald Trump had won disproportionate votes in places with large numbers of basically white, non-university educated voters. By not waiting for that, the pollsters didn't appreciate that basically that demographic in flipping en masse would swing a load of states to him. So pollsters have changed that since 2016. And they think that that's done an okay job of improving the polls. So we have midterm elections every four years. So we had 2018 midterm elections to Congress. And the polls were, according to an analysis by the New York Times, more accurate than any election for a decade. Really? So I think there is some reason to be optimistic that the polls this time are going to be a bit better, especially in the States. I remember sort of looking into this at the time and there were sort of all sorts of curious problems which meant historically polling had been slightly off. So, for example, I think they still only called people on landlines to find out which way they'd vote, which obviously a lot of the country had moved away from. But also one of the problems last time seemed to be that there were people who they just assumed would never vote. So they didn't ask for their opinions. I mean, are they changing the methodology a lot? The landline problem is, is a big problem. There's some who do it via phone and some who do it online, which I suppose, you know, polling online carries its own almost inverse issue, which is that, of course, there are some older voters who aren't especially internet savvy. I think, yes, as well as the waiting, there is a question of the sort of turnout filter where pollsters try to extract from their polls not just who are registered voters, but also who are likely voters. Partly that's to do with whether they tell you that they're going to vote or how likely people are to vote in their own self-assessment. But yes, there will be a lot of egg on pollsters' faces if they're wrong. I guess it must be harder than ever for you, given that you, you know, most journalists can't go around the country. You are sort of reliant on the polls. But I remember after 2016, Nate Silver, who's got the reputation for being one of the most accurate pollsters in, in America, he does the 538 blog, he said that it was more a failure of journalism than of polling, in that they'd always been pointing out that there was a you know, margin of error and Trump had a chance, and actually the journalism sort of fell on the answer they wanted to hear, or sort of the clear cut, not talking through the margins of error when it comes to probability. Do you think there's something in that? Is this sort of as much 
a problem with journalism as it is with polls. Maybe. I mean, Nate Silver's not a pollster per se. He's a forecaster. That's how he made his name, is taking all the polls going on in states and nationwide and working out which ones have been more successful than others and filtering them all through a model and ultimately coming up with sort of probabilistic analysis of who's more likely to win. So his view was, I can't quite remember what probability he assigned to Hillary Clinton on election day in 2016, but his view was... I think they gave Trump a one in three chance of victory. Right, so his view is, well, you know, one in three things happen one in three amount of the time. One in three is not a tiny probability. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. And And this this is is Model Model Talk. Talk. This time, as we record this, his model is giving Trump a 12 in 100 chance of winning. Wow. Which is a narrower chance. But again, you know, it's not zero. And yet he has a 12% chance of winning. That's pretty f***ing high. That's pretty f***ing high, given the circumstances. There is a chance, as we saw in 2016, of a systematic polling error that's overstating Joe Biden. And there is also a chance, as we saw in 2016, I mean, I think this is actually Donald Trump's only viable route to victory, in fact, is that the electoral college popular vote mismatch becomes even wider than it did in 2016 through Donald Trump's pretty unique voter coalition. And I suppose those eventualities combine to give Donald Trump, in his view, a 12 in 100 chance of winning the election. And and that figures, I suppose. But we should be clear about something. Joe Biden's lead, as we're recording this, on average of about nine percentage points over Donald Trump, is much bigger than Hillary Clinton's was at this stage. So a three-point national polling error would give him a six-point lead. That is still not enough for Donald Trump to win. So the polling error would have to be of a magnitude quite a bit greater than it was in 2016. And I think no pollster wants to be this blasé because they'll look silly. But I think the sense I get from the ones I've spoken to is that they're pretty confident that the modifications they've made since 2016 will not produce an error quite as big as there was in 2016. Another difference is that the fact that 2016 happened means we have a better idea of which states should be polled. There were far fewer polls in Michigan and Wisconsin and certainly fewer high-quality polls in those states because people didn't think they were part of the battleground. I think there is not only better weighted data, but there is just more of it. And what are they predicting in terms of turnout? Because that was one of the problems last time, wasn't it? There was people who they thought would never vote and had never voted before who were turning up and voting. And that was sort of unexpected. Sure. So pretty much every pollster seems to think we're on course for record turnout. We shouldn't read too much into it, but it's important to understand that People are already voting. You know, November the 3rd is not election day so much as it's the final day of the election. Yeah. Uh, and in some states, the early voting stats, both in person and postal, are off the charts. I mean, there are three counties in Texas where the number of votes already cast exceeds the total number of votes cast in that county in the entire 2016 election. People are very energised. I think there are certainly a lot of anti-Trump voters, whether they'd consider themselves Democrats or not, who stayed at home last time thinking the election was in the bag and regretted it. But also the Republicans are pretty adamant that there is a load of Trump supporters who basically never voted and didn't vote in 2016 who are now motivated to come out and vote for him and keep him in office. And there is one, I mean, there's one piece of evidence which does support that theory, which is that 
in contrast to the UK, when you register to vote here, you have the option in most states to register as a Democrat or as a Republican or, or as neither. That's partly to determine who can vote in party primaries. So, you know, who can vote for the Democratic presidential candidate in that state's primary, for example. And in quite a few crucial states, including Florida, Republicans have registered more voters, or there are more new registered Republican voters than there are new registered Democrats in recent months. So the Republicans are pretty optimistic about that. Democrats think that that might just be a case of people who had long-standing registrations as Democrats, but over the years have become Republicans, just finally updating their registration, for example. But certainly that is one little cause for concern beyond the polls that Democrats are talking about. So everything to play for in some of those key states. Is there any a sense of what both the Biden and Trump campaigns are saying privately about these polls? I mean, are they convinced or are they doing their own private polling? Do they think there's a slightly different picture? They'll both have loads of private polling, for sure. You can sort of tell that their private polling has similar evidence to the public polling from their travel choices. Because, you know, with oh. this few days to, to go, the question of where they spend their candidates' valuable time is very telling. You know, they're not going to waste their candidates' time in states that either they have in the bag or that are totally out of the question. For example, on Tuesday this week, Joe Biden has been to Georgia, which is a deep, deep red Republican state. Who would have guessed four years ago that a Democratic candidate for president in 2020 would be campaigning in Georgia on the final week of the election? We win Georgia, we win everything. It suggests that Democrats' polls privately are what we're seeing publicly, which is that he has pretty large leads in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, where, of course, he's campaigning too, and can think about expanding the map into states that Democrats haven't won for a generation. By contrast, Donald Trump is still trying to shore up those Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan states, keeps going to them, but also has been going to some defensive states. For example, last week, he went to Georgia, now, that's a really bad sign. In the same way that Joe Biden going to Georgia is a good sign for Democrats, it's a bad sign for Donald Trump to feel he has to go there. And he won it pretty comfortably over Hillary Clinton, five or six points. It is pretty clear that the Republicans think that they are losing and that they need to find a way to turn this around. We'll have more on the polls and the run-up to the American election in just a moment. But if you want to benefit from more in-depth coverage of foreign and domestic affairs then do subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Today is the last day of our flash sale, with 50% off for six months. Sale ends at 5pm. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So tell us, for, for the people who, like you last time, here in, in Britain, watching at home, what should they expect next week? What should they expect on election night? What are the key things to look out for? Well, the first sign will be Florida. Polls close in Florida at midnight UK time, and they are pretty good at counting quickly. If it becomes clear early on that Joe Biden is winning Florida, then Joe Biden is going to be president. Donald Trump can't win this election without winning Florida. Joe Biden can, but Donald Trump can't. If Florida looks very close, Mm. as the poll suggested is, then you're going to have to stay up for a fair few more hours, I'm afraid. So that's Florida. And then you start getting from sort of 1am UK time, right through the night, a sort of cascade of other states. The reason why Florida being clear or not could be so pivotal is that some of those states I mentioned, Michigan, Pennsylvania, are going to take a while to count. I mean, in Michigan's case, I think postal votes can still arrive and be counted up to two weeks after the election if they've been postmarked, i.e. put in the post, before election day, on or before election day. Now, look, that that won't matter unless the vote is incredibly, incredibly tight in Michigan, but it was last time. And Michigan elections authorities think they'll probably have a result by the Friday after the election, which, okay, well, that's four days. I mean, if, you know, if it comes down to Michigan, that could mean we're waiting several days. That means, of course, that you start getting into the questions that we've been talking about previously, about would Donald Trump, in that scenario, seek to claim that the outstanding votes are rigged or, you know, not legitimate? And what would that mean for the health of American democracy around the country? And I don't know the answer to that question. On the night, I mean, it's not just the presidential election that's happening. What are the predictions for the other races, for the Senate and the House? Democrats are pretty sure to keep hold of the House. The Senate is very important Mm. because the Republicans currently control it. They have 53 seats. It's a 100-member body. And which party controls the Senate would have a huge impact on what a Joe Biden presidency could do. I mean, by the way... If Donald Trump is winning the presidential election, then there's no way the Democrats are reclaiming the Senate. So that that scenario is sort of a bit more straightforward. But it's entirely possible that Joe Biden could win the presidency while the Republicans keep hold of the Senate, roughly a third. 35 of its 100 seats are up for grabs. And, you know, it kind of tracks what's going on nationally. Look, if Joe Biden wins a blowout presidential victory, then 
you probably are going to see the Democrats narrowly taking hold of the Senate as well. And Henry, what are you going to do for election night this time? How are you spending it? I'm not actually sure yet. I mean, I suspect Joe Biden will not have a sort of election night party as would be normal. Donald Trump probably will. Unclear whether he'll be in Washington, D.C. or in Florida. But most importantly, I will be filing several updates through the night from the Times website and also appearing through the night on the Times radio overnight election programme. <laughs> we'll be following it closely. And just, just on, uh, on Donald Trump, is it a sign if he decides to watch it from Florida rather than Washington? Well, it's certainly easier for him. Which is he more comfortable in? Well, Florida, because there's plenty of Republicans there, whether he wins it or not. I mean, Washington, D.C. is the most democratic part of the country. I wouldn't be surprised if he chooses the comforting embrace of of Florida. On the other hand, if he is really gearing up to sort of dig in and, and, and claim the election was rigged and that he's staying in the White House come what may, which I'm a little bit sceptical of, but if he is going to do all that, then obviously staying in the White House is, is the way to do that rather than, rather than travelling out of the city. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Washington correspondent for The Times, Henry Zeffman. You can keep up with all the latest on the American election at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you can, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also on the Times radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To search for the app, look for Times Radio in the App Store. Have a lovely weekend. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 